This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, energy expert and former Liberal MP Dan McTagg says oil and gas market is about to get even more complicated. Why are reserves around the world getting tapped into? Is it actually going to help? And will Canadians notice anything at the pumps? Is it possible to buy a truly green product? It's called greenwashing. Maybe it is green, maybe it's not green, maybe it's just good marketing. If we want to have a good impact on the world, we need to know. Professor Kai Chan from UBC shares how companies trick us into thinking their products are eco-friendly and the marketing behind the greenwashing. Also, there are really good companies that are doing a good job that get attacked online and misunderstood as doing a bad job. Plus, are you okay is on the podcast. Are you okay with landing a plane in Antarctica? Or how about getting fined for putting up your Christmas lights too early? $100 a day. All of this and more coming up on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. Ryan O'Donnell is here. Brendan Kelly's on vacation for the next few days. Sheldon's pushing the buttons. I'm Shane Hewitt, and it's time for Are You Okay? Are you okay with flying in the winter? Yes. Uh yeah. It's it's pretty, you know? Like it's it's kind of calming. When you're up there and when you take off and I love seeing Canada, like, you know, you, you know, there's like that, I want to say maybe like 20 minute window when you first take off where you can still see the ground properly, like the city and everything. And then, and then you get into the clouds and then it's just, all right, eight hours of clouds. But at that like nice window where you can see the whole city that you take off from and see the snow mm-hmm. all over. It's awesome. I will say though, I don't like storms one time me and my family had to fly out of prince george during a crazy winter storm and like it was i was still pretty young but i can still remember the way the plane shook on takeoff pretty well that was spooky (laughs) I like that. See, I like those things. I've, you know, being a fan of aviation, I don't think there's a whole lot better than flying in the wintertime because the air is perfect to fly in. The colder the air is, is usually really, really great for flying. And, um, the view of, of the Rockies, I also love descending into Ottawa because of all of the lakes and the Ottawa River and all those things that are there. Uh, flying into Toronto because what's the one thing you look for? CN Tower when you're about to fly into whether you're uh, flying into the island or into Pearson. So, it's really cool. You're right, Ryan. When you get to see the things, um, especially when you fly to Vancouver, uh, when you live anywhere else in the country, and then you f- you come down below the clouds, and then you get into lower in towards the valley to land, and everything's green. <laughs> That's a cool experience for people who live <laughs> elsewhere. Yeah. You guys all think like, ah, oh, it's wet, it's cold, it's green. But for everyone else, it's just that's a fun <laughs> little nugget of awesome. Now, sketchy flying in snow and storms and all that stuff, de-icing is an amazing technology that works so incredibly well. But thank goodness pilots are amazing at their jobs, able to land their planes on snowy runways and all those things. Now, there are some laws of physics that allow for some pretty great traction and downward force and reverse thrust so you don't brake to lock up those wheels. But still, kind of crazy, right? Pilots behind this particular flight and aircraft reached new heights a few weeks ago. For the first time in history, imagine this. Of all the places you could go on vacation, right now, Ryan, free ticket. Right now, for this weekend, where are you going? Japan. Oh, see, Chris. 100%. 
Yeah, yeah. I'll go see Chris, but mom, I, I want to go see uh, Sumomomomomomomomo. Oh, Sumomomomomomomo. Mm-hmm. Oh, the castles. Yeah, Sumomomomomomomo. Yeah. If you don't know what Sumomomomomomo is, I suggest you listen to last night's podcast because you will get a very clear understanding of Sumomomomomomomo. It's a thing. And we, I would love to go. I think I would go beachy. I've been thinking palm trees. I've been thinking, you know. Hawaii a lot. I think that's probably I do if that was a free ticket. The place that I wouldn't think of would be Antarctica. For the first time in history, someone landed an Airbus A340, which is a pretty common jet that you see at the airport for size, on ice in Antarctica. It's the biggest plane to ever land on that kind of runway and that runway, which is almost all ice. High fly, which is, I don't know if you trust the pilots on high fly. Hey, man, let's go on a trip, man. (laughs) High fly is a boutique aviation company that was behind this flight. They specialize in what's called a wet lease. And a wet lease is where they basically, you pay the money and they show up with an airplane full of fuel, full of crew. They take care of everything and it's your plane for the duration. Um, they even pay for insurance, which is cool. So anything goes wrong on that flight, they land in, I don't know, Florida and they, they fix it and off you go. It's not your problem. That's what a wet lease is. Hands off. Not my problem. You take care of everything. High fly flight 801 took off from Cape Town, South Africa on Tuesday, November 2nd. It is, of course, a very important moment. It's the first time an A340 is landing in Antarctica. Uh, I'll have the pleasure to do this landing myself. Very good morning, ladies and gentlemen. This is your commander speaking. My name is Carlos Mirpuri. I'm very proud to be in charge of this flight, the very first flight of an A340 to Antarctica. Expect to depart from runway 01. Other conditions in return, fantastic. And I do hope you enjoy the flight with us. Um, <sighs> sorry, that guy has the best pilot voice I've Doesn't ever he? heard. Oh, my. <laughs> I hope good. you enjoy your flight. It will be fantastic. Like that's, <laughs> that's the high fly experience there. Okay. I get it now. Yeah. I, I get right. it. <laughs> um, when you pay for a wet lease, you get a voice like that, I suppose. Now they were concerned about something called blue ice, which I'm assuming the notion is very similar to what we know as black ice. It's very beautiful, but it's a shiny layer of ice that forms on the landing strip, also made of ice, but they pulled it off. This is the first time a yes. B-40 lands in a This is history. This is history. This is history. Welcome to Wolfsfang. We have just landed uh, on runway 175, and uh, we are now approaching our parking position. And uh, I would like to thank you very much for being part of this memorable event, and look forward to see you again soon. Thank you very much. Congratulations. Congratulations. He's cool. Yeah. I want to. I wonder if that's how he talks normally. Like, do you think he has like Could a be. captain voice? Or Could be. yeah, I wonder. Is that that's, that's the, just part of the show? I don't know. I just I'm yeah. surprised you've been like, welcome to Antarctica. Thanks for being here. Don't freeze your balls off. Have a yeah. good day. If it, like, if it was Air Canada, it would be like, 
And uh, welcome to Antarctica. We're going to be taxiing for the next 45 minutes. <laughs> Enjoy your day. Yeah. <laughs> Although that did Any happen to me. My last flight was uh, welcome to, it was six, I think it was 613 to Calgary from Ottawa. And they're like, oh, this is a WestJet flight 613 to Winnipeg. What? Oh, Calgary. We're going to Calgary. <laughs> now i've heard them do that on purpose when when and poor winnipeg gets picked on right every time you get on a flight that's winnipeg to honolulu or maui or like kahului or something like that or or calgary direct they're like welcome aboard (laughs) flight 21 uh we're headed to winnipeg oh just kidding we're going to hawaii (laughs) you know poor winnipeg yeah that's mean. mean Everyone groans. They're like, oh, silly. We're going to a warm place. Flight attendant person who's funny on the mic. <sighs> I like that guy's voice. I want to hear it again. <laughs> it's going to stick with me. That, one, like that one's really good. We'll put that on me. the podcast so you can hear it back all you like. Are you okay? Are you okay with Thanksgiving? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's fine. I don't I don't go head over heels for Thanksgiving. It's a nice day off, a good feast, but I do I get excited for Thanksgiving? Not really. It's a pretty good afternoon drunk, let's call it for what it is. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah. What about American style uh, Thanksgiving cuz they take it pretty seriously? Crazy seriously. Like they yeah. do that weird marshmallow and yam thing and That's so good. It, it yeah, I don't like yams, so I don't know. But even just like in media in America, like every mm. show has got Thanksgiving episodes and it's a big thing. Whereas like, I think it's really low key here. Like a lot of people still do it, but we don't think it's like this giant best day of the year where in the States it's like Thanksgiving. It's, yeah. I find it the really only funny, time actually. Well, and it kicks off the Christmas season too. Uh, the only yeah. time that I've spent Thanksgiving in the United States, I did it in all the, of the coolest places. It was in Atlanta. And it was exactly oh, like you describe God. it. Over the top. The dinner was amazing. It was fantastic. Um, everything was wonderful. Well, it's America's Day to celebrate the first uh, harvest feast in America. And much like Canada, there comes need to help those who are in need on this holiday. Everyone should have a Thanksgiving dinner. That's the notion. That's why the city of Stockton in California with um, um, Stockton, uh, just just so you know, is That's a typo. has a K in it, uh, yeah. is hosting a run to raise money for the hungry. Cool, right? City of Stockton, Great. let's do a run to raise money for the hungry. There's only one little problem. In order to have this run to raise money for the hungry, they're evicting a homeless encampment that's in the way of the path of the run. Oh, my God. <laughs> Here's more from ABC Come 10. On. Folks were given notice to leave on Friday. They say that notice came without any explanation, and it was only after advocates and folks experiencing homelessness started asking questions when they found out it was to make room for a Thanksgiving fun run to feed the hungry. But folks we spoke with staying in the area say they're being forced to leave without anywhere else left to go, and they haven't received any resources or navigation tools to help them find somewhere else. We spoke with Nick, who has been sleeping out of his car with his wife and three dogs at this camp about how he's feeling about having to leave i feel like it's just they they have no compassion for the homeless or the unhoused 
So it just hurts me. It makes me cry because of the city. You know, they say they're going to work from the bottom and actually fight for the homeless, and they're not doing anything for us except for displacing us. That's heartbreaking. That's just absolutely like, heartbreaking. What a how do you make that decision? I mean, absolutely, you should have a run. But if you've got a bunch of people that have taken up shop and you're going to make a move on Thanksgiving, like it defeats, kind of defeats the purpose, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. um, wow. Now, this is Are You Okay? And unfortunately, my personal integrity about being um, Ryan's friend and endlessly bugging about his spelling, I have to hold him into account for this sentence mm -hmm. to wrap this all up. Yeah. There is more. There is more planed. That's a typo. There's yep. a planed protest this morning. Agassent. That's a typo. The decision. Agassent. Yeah. Yeah. There is a planned protest this morning against the decision. Um, thank you, Emro from ABC Ten, for that information. It's a typo. It's a typo. It's like Friday here on the shift. Uh, there was a text message that came in about the runway story that I wanted to address before we moved on too far. Uh, someone had texted in acknowledging Ken Boric Air out of Calgary, who flies uh, the otters down there quite regularly to the um, to the uh, Antarctic. And there was another one that said, um, this is from Shoe Swap Sean. Hey, Sean, I love your shoe swaps. Um, the pilot to Antarctica said runway 175. That's weird. You think it'd be runway one or runway two, possibly even runway three in Antarctica, but runway 175. Pretty wild numbering system. I can help you with that. The numbering system of runways is not one, two, or three, like you would think of convention and chronological order. The run, the numbering of all runways is based on the compass. So runway nine, right, um, mm -hmm. would be runway one or 175 is 175 degrees, right? So if you have runway 10, it's 10 degrees to the compass of north, right? So 10 right would be the runway on the right-hand side. 10 left would be the 10-degree runway on the left. So runway 90 would be 90 degrees, a runway that goes south. So the opposite number is the 360-degree compass. So, for example, the opposite runway for runway 10 would be runway 19. Make sense? So, um, because that's 190, zero is 180, 10 is 190, just on the compass. So if you didn't ever know, to your point, Sean, about a weird wild numbering system, that is why runways are numbered the way they're numbered. Another thing is Antarctica does not have a single airport. It's all just random international runways, private runways. Really? There are no airports there. So huh. you land where you land. And there's there'll be something there, but there's not a single airport. That's why it's all chartered or military, international. Yeah, Antarctica's pretty neat. That is cool. Huh. Yeah. Sounds chilly. Are you okay? Are you okay with Christmas lights? What a terrible question. I yeah. Christmas I, lights. Uh, they irk me when I see them all year round. Like somebody who yeah, just doesn't enough. take them down. That's a little weird, but it's kind of like when those lights start coming up and turn it on, it's, it's the time of year. And one time I remember in my old house, we set up like, you know, when you go to a, 
a rustic bar or pub and they have those hanging old fashioned lights that kind of give an orangey glow to them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We got that for Christmas lights and I thought this is going to be stupid. That's not Christmassy. And when the house was done, I looked at it and went, I'm in a Christmas movie right now. Like it was just oh, the really? whole, like with the snow around, it was beautiful. It was amazing. And it really does add to the season. So it hell does. yeah. Love them. I would even go as far as to say that, you know, if you, some people, cause they just put permanently the lights on their house, like as a fixture now, they, cause the technology, yeah. they put them right into the soffits and stuff. Um, People, when they light up their house, red on Canada Day and orange for Halloween and pink for mm -hmm. Valentine's Day, green for St. Patty's Day. I can vote for that, too. I like that stuff. Some people like a nice, simple setup. I walk by a house. They have a tree in front. They had probably two strings of multicolored lights on the tree. Look fantastic. Some people go way overboard, set up an amazing display, which is, be honest, the right way to do it. But one thing is very important here, and that is the timing and how early is too early for Christmas lights, the family in the Sai, this, this, that would be this story if that was spelled correctly. Oh, Just this so story know. hired a professional to set up their display this year. One problem, he had a schedule in conflict, so he had to come on November 6th. Objectively early, but the family's home association was not okay with the early display. Oh, what a dismay. <laughs> down by the bay slight bars nice um the association is now threatening to fine the family they're gonna have to pay guess where they live come on guess where they live they live in florida what does it mean to be from florida florida straight drill ah, ah we love florida so here's the actual story from fox 10 if you take a look at the lights, there's, it's not egregious, right? I mean, and when they're on, they actually look pretty cool. And the kids enjoy it, put a smile on their face. In a notice sent on November 8th, the West Chase Community Association said the lights were in violation, adding that holiday decorations aren't allowed to go up until Thanksgiving Day. If the violation isn't corrected, the notice says the association may impose a fine of $100 a day, up to $1,000. Chelsea Maffa's post about it on Facebook went viral. We honestly never thought that it would turn into what it has. I'm grateful that it has because I feel like it's just brought everyone all over the country together. It's even getting the attention of the self-proclaimed Queen of Christmas. Mariah Carey retweeted an article about the story, writing in part, quote, there's no regulating festiveness. It's been amazing uh, that she now knows who the Moffas are. We're happy that she stands by us. <laughs> I mean, it is worth <laughs> noting that they excluded a part of Mariah's tweet. Oh. Despite being the queen of Christmas, Mariah personally does not turn on her Christmas lights until after Thanksgiving. Just worth noting. Okay. An attorney for Fox 10 said the fine that they could get comes after a complaint from a neighbor, of course, the band neighbor. Uh. Yep. The Homeowners Association will need to vote on whether to go through the very Scrooge-like fine. Go with the very Scrooge-like fine or not to go with the very Scrooge-like fine. Um, okay, I get it. It's early. Still, $100 a day? Come on, man. I Like, why you got to be like that? <laughs> why you got to do that? Like, it's, it's yeah. Christmas. I understand if you put up Halloween decorations in, like, August. But come on. <laughs> yeah. It's very valid. Very valid point.
And here in Canada, I mean, typically remember it's daylights on. That's the way it works. And, uh, but we had snow here earlier. So for the most part. So, you know, down in the States after Thanksgiving, when I was in Atlanta for Thanksgiving, it was 25 degrees Celsius when we landed. So it doesn't really feel like you need your Christmas lights on anyway. This is the Shift Podcast. With all the stories that we talked about here on the shift to get the show started, there's a couple other ones that we didn't really dig much into, and one of those being strategic petrol- petroleum reserves. It's a mouthful. Um, I imagine it as some sort of evil character from a movie sitting in a lair going, uh, 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 with a mountain filled with gasoline. It's not quite like that, but what happened today in energy land, and we're going to combine a couple of topics here to get into it, was that down in the States, the president said, yes, turn on the taps from the reserve and let's just push pause there because what happened next Dan McTagg is here, former Liberal M- uh, MP, Foreign Affairs, uh, Canadians for Affordable Energy. This has turned out to be a busy day because of what the president in the United States said. Well, exactly, Shane. I mean, what we've seen here is uh, a president who actually for the past three weeks has said that he is going to um, tap into a reserve. Now, this reserve has been around since about 1974, 75, and it goes back to a time when the world was really held hostage by OPEC uh, following the 1973 Yom Kippur War, in which uh, OPEC uh, began to flex its muscle. And rather than simply selling oil to, um, you know, Europe and to the United States, which had increasingly seen its uh, domestic supplies uh, and production of oil dwindle since 1970, it was prepared to use this as a bargaining chip if you will, uh, to get uh, Americans to see things their way. And it was really over the Middle East. Fast forward to today, that strategic petroleum reserve, along with uh, a dozen other countries, have a similar reserve. Canada doesn't, but uh, uh, countries, uh, many countries in Asia and Europe have uh, a semblance of a reserve in which they, from time to time, will fill a certain amount, in the case of the United States, about 700 million barrels of oil, is stored in the caverns uh, along the uh, U.S. Gulf Coast in Louisiana and Alabama, I think even over into Mississippi, but in the same area where you have a lot of uh, refineries. Uh, the idea behind that is to be able to shield countries under the international energy mandate against these future shocks, usually the result of uh, some geological or uh, uh, meteorological disaster, such as a hurricane or an earthquake, um, or in the case of war, insurrection, which causes a disruption of supply. So that's yeah. how it's been used. It's been used a half a dozen times in the past 30 years. Um, the last time, I, but rarely for the uh, for the case of high higher gas prices, mostly because there's a physical disruption. And so and that's really how the SPR, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, came into being. And it's often done in a coordinated way under the uh, leadership of the International Energy Agency, not you know, a, a president or a Congress or, uh, you know, a group of politicians. So this mm-hmm. makes t- uh, what happened uh, yesterday and today very unique. Well, and it's a really actually cool story. If you find this conversation just in general interesting, <laughs> look up the history of that. That um, I mean, like if you're, you're feeling nerdy about it, look up the Petroleum Reserve because, uh, A, there's that real protectionist military chunk to it. 
good storyline to learn about. And then there was also a, a timeline where there was work on a, a joint deal with Canada and the States. And the p- original proposal was on the East Coast in Canada on islands. And that was a great idea until America went, wait a second, you're going to store our oil in your country? And then they were like, how about we just keep it at home? And so that all changed. But it's a neat storyline about some of the things that were batted about so many years ago. And here we are today talking about it. Now, the markets, though, everything, one of the biggest things they're always afraid of when they release things like this, like here's a bunch of oil in the market, is what is the price of the oil going to do? And the market actually kind of went the other way, Dan, of what it was expected. It's This is a strange time. There's lots of moving parts. Yeah. When President Biden and his uh, White House uh, started to toy with the idea of releasing uh, about three weeks ago, oil had actually, West Texas Intermediate had hit $85 a barrel at one point. Uh, and of course, Brent, the international benchmark, was heading a little bit closer to 88 and uh, ever since then, it's been struggling to maintain anything above 75, dropping actually down to 74, even 74 and a half uh, just a couple of days ago. So it was the worst kept secret. Uh, the markets had baked into the fact that there was going to be some kind of, uh, you know, uh, release. Uh, and uh, the idea behind it is really flood the market and drop those prices, except that it wasn't enough. And when you think about what he's proposed, as I mentioned, 700 million barrels is in the reserve. He said he's going to give 50 million. Uh, that sounds like a lot of 50 million barrels sounds like a lot of fuel. But think about it. The United States consumes 20 million barrels of oil a day. So all he's done is said, I'm going to give you two and a half days worth. Most basically said, uh, as my kids would say, whoop de doo <laughs> There's nothing here. Uh, so that's what happened. And yesterday we saw oil markets tank, uh, rather increase their value by about 2%. And the idea of uh, providing any kind of alleviation to Americans on the weekend, which they're heading off tomorrow, I guess, for their Thanksgiving long weekend, um, it, uh, it had uh, a negligible, in fact, it had a reverse effect. So obviously, Uh, They're going to have to go back to the drawing board on this. And uh, although I could suggest things that they should do, the other shoe has yet to drop, Shane. The other shoe is going to be OPEC. Yeah, so let's let's talk about OPEC in one second. I'm going to flip the switch from your energy mind to your former MP, Liberal MP mind. Why do they do this for two days of oil, Dan? Is it is it because the headlines of I'm going to fight high gas prices uh, in parentheses, by the way, it's only for yeah. two days. Um, is that headline enough politically to get you the raw raw from most people who don't look into it to go? Yeah, man, he's on our team. Yeah. Is that what it is? Because that really just seems like all that's going on. Well, you know, Biden, uh, like uh, his the president before him, Trump, played a lot of games or, you know, fed into the whole idea of gas prices. Uh, there was a time in Canada where it meant a lot. The United States hasn't changed. Um, my previous job working at Gas Buddy, five years, uh, most of my media, more work was done with US media. And what came of my time there was recognizing that Canadians are so, uh, you know, so laid back when it comes to energy prices, not the Americans. This yeah. energy rise, uh, you know, has started really since uh, since the end of, end of uh, spring, beginning of summer. Uh, is now uh, the main issue. And I think uh, politically speaking, uh, putting my old cap back on, I think the Democrats know they're in big trouble. And uh, that's uh, this one issue of gasoline energy prices. Might work in Europe, might work in Canada, 
might work in other places around the world, but it doesn't work in the United States. You don't mess around with the fuel price that they have down there. And there's a perception, uh, which is very correct, of the anti-fossil fuel position taken by you know, the green elements within the Biden administration and Congress that are driving uh, producers out of, uh, out of uh, what they normally do. The United States, by the way, is down a million and a half barrels from where it was before the pandemic. So they were producing 13 million barrels a day. Now they're down to about 11 and a quarter, 11 and a half. So that's where the problem is. And unfortunately, it's leading to much higher prices. An undersupply situation in the United States is leading to a global undersupply, which uh, unfortunately, uh, Mr. Biden's going to have to wear. There are all kinds of geopolitical storylines that are dancing here between Saudis and uh, Khashoggi and all of those storylines. So if you really want to dig into it, we could spend days talking about it. So let's talk about OPEC. Um, You know, the the politically, though, they've put the squeeze on. I just like to summarize it this way. Those folks are looking to make back the money they lost in the last year and a half, and they want to do it in short order. They're not willing to wait. Uh, Correct. Other problem. They're hitting 10.7 million barrels. Saudi Arabia, that'll be a record for Saudi Arabia. They've never produced 7.7 million barrels. So here's the thing. Uh, Russia, it's winter. Russia does not sell a lot of extra spare barrels of oil. In case anybody wanted to notice, they have to keep a lot of it domestically. Forget the natural gas thing for a second. So Saudi Arabia's at its max. Russia's at its, uh, you know, can't do much for the next six months. Uh, And, you know, what they're saying to the United States is, you know, you guys have got to figure this out. You've told your financiers under ESG mandates, that's the environmental, social, and governance mandates, don't invest in oil, don't invest in fossil fuels. The problem is it's leaving the world short at a time in which it needs more, not less. In the case of OPEC, I think what they're likely to do, which would certainly serve their interest, and I mentioned that it's important. Saudi Arabia is at 10.7 million barrels a day production, a record. They're likely to say to Mr. Biden, and others who've joined in. So that'd be China, South Korea, Japan, uh, who else? India, who released a little bit of their strategic, committed to leave, uh, released part of their strategic uh, reserve. We're going to cut back production. That's what OPEC is going to say on Monday or Tuesday. That's going to send oil prices on a tear, and it will completely upend the intention of releasing that uh, strategic petroleum reserve. So it's a, unfortunately, it's for us in Canada, I would uh, probably guess that by within the next week and a half, if, if OPEC comes together and says we are cutting back on our output, we are supposed to increase it by 400,000 barrels every month uh, per day. If they don't do that and they say we're going to freeze, watch, we'll go to 85 bucks a barrel in perhaps as little as three or four days. And that'll be a 10 cent increase for everybody across the country, like it or not. Yeah. Wow. Okay, let's bring this home. Let's bring it back to Canada. Mm. I would. I know that not everybody will agree with this, Uh I think that they've done a pretty good job managing the BC situation. Uh, What a dreadful situation in BC. There have been gasoline, uh, I would say rationing going on. It's probably the nicest way to say it. Um, The reality is, is there's just not enough coming in. Although the the reason why I want to be kind about this is because the hardworking folks that have been getting train lines back up, roads back up, there are so many people that are working so hard to bring this back up. A lot of the rationing has worked to me if i'm going to be pragmatic about it and put on my business hat i would say hello we need a backup plan we just can't you can't build your base of a business on one thing and one thing only that's business 101 you can't i mean your base has to be the most of the secure and then your risk is the one-shot deals so that's my business head we're not only seeing that out on the west coast now which is 
they're treading water. Let's just say it's not great, but they're treading water on the East Coast, though, getting pummeled with some some winter storms as they do. And it's um, but it's it's going to put more of a squeeze on all this. Well, I think it's bringing to light the fact that we're going to have a season like uh, a winter season, like ones we've seen uh, in 20 to 30 years. Uh, I think of this as being 1999 all over again, at least for us here in Toronto. when <laughs> We had to bring in the army. Yeah. But very similar. I never lived events. it down, by the way. I know, <laughs> I know. Mel Lassman. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, yes, I know. It was really bad being a member of Parliament. You can imagine at that time. I imagine I the phone calls. My riding was eh? called Ontario Riding. So um, yeah. I got I got a real ribbing from everybody. Um, <laughs> but I, Shane, I think the, you know, kudos to those who have been working so hard to get things back up in BC. And prayers really to folks uh, on the East Coast because it's... Uh, it's not a pleasant situation and they're going to have, uh, it's going to take several days for them to, uh, to get out of this. And it's really only the beginning of the, of, of, of the, you know, inclement, to put it mildly weather. Uh, but I, I sense though, that infrastructure is going to continue to be, uh, you know, um, an important message. And I don't care where we come at on this environmental issue or what political strain one has. I think adaptation is going to become the key word. Uh, and how we're going to have to work to mitigate and ensure infrastructure prepares us to be that so-called resilient uh, nation that we need to be because uh, things like this can and do and often happen. Our population is growing. My goodness, when I was a first became a member of parliament, there were 295 seats in the House of Commons. Now, you know, 338 and moving potentially to 370. Our population has grown. Our exposure to many more regions of the country is uh, is certainly there, and many more of us see it day in, day out, social media, etc. Uh, but let's say that adaption is an important part of it, and also respecting and recognizing critical infrastructure. So that's electrical grids, natural gas pipelines. And yes, in the case of British Columbia, the oil pipeline, the Trans Mountain Pipeline is still not up. And I'm worried yeah. that if it doesn't come up by next week, we may be dealing with, uh, you know, uh, again, even more uh, requirements to dig deeper and to find another way to get around so that uh, the region doesn't come become completely shut off uh, and energy uh, deficient. Yeah. Well, and you know what? Uh, boy, oh boy. If we're going to talk about anything and, and we all want to be more responsible in this conversation in all of our lives all the time, and we need to be, we all know that, uh, we need to protect a lot of these things so um, we don't unwind all our work. I mean, if you take a hundred thousand truckloads of whatever, because train lines go down or, you know, all that stuff, we're just unwinding the efficiencies that have been created anyway. So, yeah. you know, and not, not to mention power grid, we would all love it if um, everything was more secured and, and taken care of. So there's no denying that. That's the cool part of the conversation, right? Like it's okay. It's okay to challenge everything that's going on to make sure it's done properly. And in the meantime, I did go, there's one Costco here in Calgary that sells diesel for my car. And I went there today and I saved eight bucks because I went to Costco and, um, and well, $7, I guess, by the time I was done. And that made me incredibly happy because affordability and cost of energy is on everybody's mind because we're seeing it, especially coming into Christmas time when, um, you know, people are going to want to try to do new things, especially after last year, whether that's the road trip or whatever, it matters. It does. It does change. It's changed a little bit though. I got to tell you, I mean, I was there, um, right front uh, center on this energy uh, price rise in 2008, again in 2012. Um, I'm not seeing it. Uh, and I'm seeing it with the people. 
but I'm not sure it's being picked up by the people who ought to spend a bit more time on this. I think what's happening here, and it does concern me, is that um, opinion leaders are not in sync with what consumers and, and Canadians are feeling. Oh, they're not. And I think it's yeah. uh, it's important that they get back in touch as soon as possible. Yeah, and you know, a conversation maybe for next week, but yep. the you know the throne speech was all about things that were topics from three months ago when they were preparing for the election. The throne speech wasn't even about what Canadians were going through here. And I, I, this is maybe us, my ego and tooting our own horn, but when we are on here, the shift at nighttime talking about affordability and cost of energy before they became an election topic and months before the government has even started to include it, Canadians should be concerned about that. That means they're just not listening. And I will hold all the parties, conservatives and everyone into account because they need to be pressing for this as well. So I'm taking everyone into account on that one. That is not a liberal statement. That is an everybody Canadian government statement because this stuff needs to change. And affordability to me, I can, I'll just tell it flat out, Dan, if this is you and I having a coffee on our private chats, Yep. I worry about money again. I hadn't. COVID started, I was worried about money, things settled. I was like, okay, I got a handle on this. And in the last three or four months, I'm seeing enough change where I start to question this. And I would love to ask this question of the prime minister and of the leaders of all the parties. When was the last time you needed to make a decision of what was for dinner this week? Is it a bag of noodles or a loaf of bread? And there are Canadians in this country that are making that decision again and have all along but are that's they're, they've graduated into that what what can i afford a two dollar bag of noodles or a two dollar loaf of bread because that's as good as it's going to get and until they clue into that then we um they don't get it my best friend's wife works at a uh, food bank i won't mention the city here in ontario said so the numbers are skyrocketing and yes 20 percent. yeah and and uh it's a cost of accommodation, it's cost of energy, it's cost of everything. Look, um, Shane, I, as a member of parliament, came out very quickly. with We had a problem in 2000, and I thought one of the best things the federal government could do in our capacity at the time was given the windfall of revenue governments receive in higher costs and taxes on fuel, et cetera, give some of that back in the form of a, I call it a food rebate, call it an energy rebate, call it whatever you want, but at least try to address people's needs at a time in which things are going to get really, really tough. So I'm with you on that. And I think there's solutions. I didn't hear that in the throne speech. It was like deja vu all over again. But uh, I I think in the the conversation is going to change radically. I think it's already begun, but I was uh, very frustrated for the past couple of years, you know, energy. president Canadians for affordable energy and no one wanted to talk about it even though it was right front and center yeah well let's take advantage of this to say just yep. so you know food banks of canada says uh 20 increase in traffic uh to their stores and that's a staggering number when you know how much food they do already so if you do have a chance to help out in your own way in your local community uh and you don't know what to do that's a great place to start dan mctagg canadians yep. for affordable energy former liberal mp here on the shift it's great to see you bud Great to be here. Thanks for having me on the shift. Take care, Shane. This is the shift podcast. What is greenwashing? Greenwashing has become this phrase that's been batted about uh, a lot more lately. And as a notion, greenwashing is very similar to buying stock mutual funds and and rsps what that makes no sense shane it does here's why when you buy stocks 
you pay one price for the fund. Inside that, though, are a bunch of companies that own a bunch of companies that do a bunch of things. See, you don't really know if you're investing in something that you might not believe in. You could be investing in a company that does dreadful things on the other side of the world, and you don't know. Greenwashing is sort of that in. We have all these topics and these, these understandings about what is best for our environment, and yet it often gets washed over and lost in marketing and tracing of the product and the shipping of the product. That could be an organic carrot. It's true, but it could be in a dreadful plastic bag that's bad for the environment that was shipped on a the one carrot on the world's biggest jetliner to bring to you. You know what I mean? That's not that's not an organic green carrot anymore. So this is where we bring in the experts because that is a big whirlpool of bowl of spaghetti of notions. Kai Chan is professor for Institute of Resources, Environment, Sustainability at the University of BC. Kai. How are you? I'm great, Shane. How are you? Good. That is the swirl of sort of greenwashing. Maybe I didn't do the best job explaining it, but I think the confusion that comes from that is a good example of what we're talking about. It is so confusing, you know, and I think we could use any number of different metaphors to get at the fact that it is just super hard to figure out when a company's claims about how good they are for the planet are true versus just a load of bullcrap. Well, you can swear here. It's fine. Um, the uh, But it really is. And not only, uh, it's kind of like that where there's smoke, there's fire cliche. Maybe I'm just filled with cliches today. But it seems to be that there's probably an element of green in there somewhere. A marketing person might have looked at that and said, well, we grew it by natural sunlight. Therefore, it's green, right? I mean, who knows? Uh, we don't do our due diligence in this either. Yeah, no, it's true. There, there's usually a gem of truth, and then there's usually such a thick sheen of packaging in terms of how that message is packaged that it's really hard for most people to figure out what's what's really going on there. And you know, and it gets worse because the the whole system by which NGOs try to check that process of companies greenwashing actually ends up leading to some of the best players on the market, the best companies looking yeah. like the worst ones. And, and that's something that I think very few people understand, but something that we really need to understand. This is the part that always gets me, right? Is when you've got someone who is, uh, you know, it's the whitewashing, right? It's the greenwashing of these products. It diminishes the companies that do the amazing work. And I don't know about your opinion about the documentary. I don't agree with everything in the documentary Seaspiracy, but I do like the way that they expose how companies are basically paying for a brand membership under the disguise of healthy tuna. Um, you know, that's... I. Everyone can take away from that documentary what they want. And it was paid for by someone who obviously had a reason to do it anyway. So let's call it for what it is. The cool part about it, though, is that they do expose many of those memberships, labels, you know, member of the Good Fish Club, I don't know, that are just basically bought and paid for. You're not really held into account. Yeah, and there's loads of cases like that across all different kinds of industries. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's actually hard to find an industry where, where the claims are really transparent and the folks who are on the buying side can know exactly what they're paying for. So how do we dig into this? Uh, you can talk about specifics if you like, if you have yeah. favorites, the ones that you like or don't like, or even just industries, if that's best for you and where you stand in this. But I think it would help us, Kai, if we could dig into an example of someone or organization or industry that does a pretty good job with it, understanding nobody's perfect, and maybe another industry that really does snow us that we see. The, yeah, so let's Or is see. it everybody? Maybe it's everybody. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's, you know, I think the system is so badly broken that it's hard to pick out an industry where you really can tell what you're getting. But uh, let, let me pick out, instead of a whole industry, let me pick out some some shining lights in terms of some particular programs that, that have been super helpful. So the Energy Star program, that's a great program. You know, this mm -hmm. labeling of appliances based on yeah, how on much energy, exactly. Yeah, yeah, how much energy is going to be consumed by that product over, you know, its regular use over time. It's the kind of thing that, you know, consumers really want to know that in part because it affects their utility bills, but also it, it provides that information like in the right way at the right time in, 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 a, in a way that you can compare it across different appliances that you might choose, right? And so, so that's a, a great example of a, of a government stepping in and providing really useful information right at the point of sale. Right. So so that's really good. Appliances, I guess maybe that is one of those places where for the most part, we've got the right kind of information getting at the right point. Now, what's interesting about that case is it's not a case of branding. Right. Like all of the marketing has been stripped out of that label. I mean, I don't know whether other people shop the way I do, but, you know, I like I just ignore everything else that the appliance company might say about the appliance and just look at the label to see, you know, is it true that it is better than its competitors? Right. Um, but yeah, any other case where we are relying upon the claims that companies make, we're in this really difficult space where they're saying things that are not comparable and they're saying things that where there's no way for the most part to check if it's really true um and there are a few exceptions to that but yeah i mean if, if we want to talk about some particulars i want to i want to tell you a story that illustrates just how broken this is yeah please so i don't know if you know much about the idea like live plucked down but this is one of the, you know, the many different concerns that folks have in terms of ethical purchasing. It's kind of, a, it's kind of green, but, uh, and it does involve a company that, that really does make strong claims about their environmental, their environmental record. And that's Patagonia. Yeah. So a few years ago, Patagonia was targeted by a bunch of NGOs. I think it started with Greenpeace for actually having live plucked down in their supply chains, despite the fact that they had come out on record as pledging not to. And so what ensued then was that for the next few years, most students that I taught in class, and I think that's a reflection of lots of other people, were under the impression that Patagonia was a bad player in this mm -hmm. space because they, were, they said they weren't plucking geese and ducks alive, which is an animal welfare concern, and they actually were. Mm -hmm. 
And there are several pieces that didn't get told in that story and that, for the most part, almost nobody knew. Mm-hmm. So one of those is that actually Patagonia was one of the was just about the first company. I don't. It's not exactly the first, but of the larger companies. Yeah, the biggies. Yeah, one of the first to actually make that commitment to have live plucked, non live plucked down. Yeah. Second is that Patagonia is by far an industry leader in terms of being transparent about their supply chains. Another thing that people don't realize is how deep those supply chains are and how hard it is for a company to actually know the ultimate source. So, that, you know, there's like seven steps in most supply chains. Patagonia is the final step, and they probably know about the next two or three, but there might be two or three or even four more uh, between the actual farmers that are supplying the feathers and, you know, and Patagonia at retail. So, what happened was that Patagonia simultaneously, or not simultaneously, but had made both a really strong commitment in terms of turning away from this product that they was against their ethical principles and also opened up their supply chains so that others could see who they were actually buying from. They didn't realize, apparently, I mean, I can't imagine why they would have done this if they had realized. They didn't realize that they had actually purchased some down from farmers that were plucking live. But oh. when Greenpeace did the work, they realized, hey, shoot, you know, some of these farmers are actually live plucking still. What happened then is that because this company was bold enough to be ahead of the industry and to make that claim in a public way about the live plucking, and because they did the crucial step of being transparent, they actually then took a big brand hit. You know, and were then seen as being less sustainable than so many of their competitors that by any objective metric were far less sustainable. Yeah. So that's how broken the system is. Yeah. Well, so but that does that does raise the question. I mean, you have organizations that some of them do amazing things. Um, You have organizations that um, like Surfrider, they clean beaches and they care about beaches. They focus on beaches. And I find that this is one of the ones that is a good example for me because that's what they focus on. They focus on the waterline. They focus on the beaches. You don't really see them step into trees, right? You don't really see them step into, well, plucking. They just focus on beaches. When you get these biggies like Greenpeace, they're so wide. It's almost like they chase so many things that the specifics don't end up there. For example, if you and I are running, you know, this organization that went after them over live plucking, their responsibility would be to come out and say this has been corrected, in my opinion, as well. If you're going to have corporate responsibility and this has been fixed, to say that, yes, this is what happened, this is the way it was dealt with, and this is where it is today. Because if you're going to take the other organization into account, it's also your responsibility to clean it up uh, when you do it. I mean, here in the media, it happens all the time. If we say something wrong, we correct it. Uh, If it's printed in the newspaper, uh, yes, I get it. It's often printed on a small page on the back right corner, unless it's a big deal. But there are some at least integrity pieces that are happening, and we don't find these in some of these big corporate cases. Um, it's it's battle of the humans being greedy and ego-filled, it seems. Yeah, I mean, I don't blame Greenpeace exactly for this. You know, I don't I don't think it was so much a case of them not knowing their stuff. I think they did they did their job well. The problem is a more of a systemic one, right? The problem mm-hmm. is that they, they need for their donors and their funders, they needed uh, wins. 
because they needed a win, they needed to pick a, a company that had its brand on the line. Yeah. And, and that's one that actually really has commitments, yeah. right? And, and it, they're just, what's not incorporated is the awareness of the systemic effects, right? The fact that by targeting that company that is an industry leader, the, the negative, the unintended effect is that you're actually hitting them where it hurts in a way that is going to disincentivize other companies from trying to be leaders in the same kinds of ways or in other ways. And right? that's, and, yeah, and that's, that you just said it a better way than I, I said it. Um, that, see, that's, that to me becomes the politics, which becomes a problem in this, that if they're looking for a win, they're making a make, they're looking to make a bad guy. If they truly cared about the environment, if they can make a, an example out of somebody, that trickles down to mentorship for a hundred other companies. If you're looking to make a bad guy of them, then you get your you get your political win, but you're actually not changing the world. And maybe that's deeply philosophical. I guess that I find that we are more successful when we hold up the champions, right? And say, even in, even in the failure of the supply chain that you talk about Patagonia, to hold them up as a champion and say, they did make a mistake and this is how they fixed it now. And not only did they fix it, they found this and this and this, and they fixed those two. To me, I think that as uh, as mentors in this world, when we hold people up, we're going to do so much better. And I guess maybe just I struggle with some of these organizations that just want to shoot people down all the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think there's a place for all different kinds of organizations. In my mind, the problem is that there's there's nobody playing that role that you just said, right? There's nobody that 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 folks can turn to that is a trusted source of this like distinction between who is really doing a good job and who is not doing such a great job, who doesn't have to make a big splash and have a, like, you know, a win that they can report in the same kind of way to their donors and funders, but whose job it is to just reflect the truth. Part two of my conversation with Kai Chan, Professor, Institute for Oceans and Fisheries at UBC, where we talk about how we can do something about this. What is greenwashing? How are we being fooled and it's not working in our favor? Part two is next in The Shift. This is The Shift Podcast. We are in conversation with Kai Chan. He's a professor at UBC, Institute for Oceans and Fisheries, Environment, Sustainability, and more. And we are chatting about greenwashing. What is greenwashing? How can we figure out if a company is greenwashing their product to make it look more appealing, even though it might not be better for the environment? Our conversation continued. Okay, so let's take this off of green conversation to create another example to keep it simple. Uh, you remember Axe Body Spray? Everyone mm-hmm. remembers the Axe Body Spray commercials. They're on TV. You'd see like the the guy sprays himself with the Axe Body Spray, and women basically fall out of the sky um, because he's he smells so good. The women come all over him, like just come to him, and they just they're all over him. So then, uh, then we know Dove, and Dove took on that love your body. Your body's perfect campaign um, for women and empowering women campaign. And Dove owned that as a campaign. Two very different approaches to hygiene care. Exact same company, Unilever. 
right? So that becomes a corporate sort of juxtaposition that happens in the world. So we also have companies that do this around green products too, that on one end of it, they'll sell something that's incredibly green uh, that could be legitimately green. And on another end, they'll sell something that they're trying to greenwash it. So how do we how do we deal with this? And how do we find out what products legitimately are going to be green? I, I can almost hear the audience right now uh, talk about uh, electric vehicles, Kai, because EVs, as an example, when you talk about consumption of energy are cleaner than combustion. When you talk about front to back, manufacturing to disposal with the batteries and the minerals are not. So is that an example of greenwashing where we're just looking at a tiny little segment of this notion? I mean, we all wish that one day we can not, you know, have exhaust, but is that an exa- is that a simple example of greenwashing or is that too complicated? I don't know if we'll find any simple examples. <laughs> They're all well, that could be the point. But, yeah, that could be the point. Yeah. So, you know, electric vehicles, it's it's true that there are some extra environmental impacts that are associated with the production of the batteries. Um, I don't know that I'd say that that they're an example of greenwashing because, you know, I, I don't I don't actually think that in most cases that that outweighs the benefits of the much greater fuel economy and the fact that the emissions, you know, that you can rely on the grid for the electricity and for the source of energy. And therefore the emissions are happening um, in a consolidated way, if at all. So, you know, in places like British Columbia, where we rely on hydroelectric energy, we actually have, you know, basically zero emissions. So I'll say basically because it's not exactly zero, yeah. but that's a complication we can get to later. Yeah, clean, pretty clean source, right? Yeah. Of course, it's different in places where they've still got coal-fired power plants that are producing their electricity. But you know, the hope is that, elect- that electric vehicles are going to come online as we are transitioning those power plants away from the more greenhouse gas intensive fossil fuels um so but you know one thing that i want to pick up on with electric vehicles is this notion that you know that i think is pretty prevalent where folks think just because it's electric therefore it's better and I think that is way too much of a simplification, right? Like, mm-hmm. so I was looking at the the Rivian pickup, and uh, I love it's fancy. I love yeah. the idea of being able to pull out this tray and have this like kitchen, right, right yeah. there. That that was just like, you know, nice boy toy there that appealed I just, to me. I tremendously. love the torque, right? The, like the yeah. driving an electric. If you've never driven one, just driving one is a whole new experience. That's just so pleasant. It's awesome. Yeah. So there's a lot of good to be had. Yeah, but I think there's a real danger that we're going to overlook the fact that there are some just plain bads that come about from having a big vehicle that don't go away entirely or even mostly just because it's electric, right? So, you know, so I was really tempted to to get a Rivian, Mm -hmm. but then I realized it's more than twice the weight of my current vehicle current vehicle that, that serves all of our needs, right? So mm-hmm. even, even if it is much more environmentally friendly per unit power, it's got way more power and, and way more weight. And so, yeah. 
you know, on the balance, it's nowhere near as good as I could do if I were to pick a more reasonable sized vehicle that would be appropriate for my daily needs as a, as a part, as opposed to my kind of like once a year trip where I might use right. that pullout kitchen. Right. Well, maybe rent one, I guess. I mean, and this yeah. is where it gets, I mean, and you talk about that weight, that weight includes uh, asphalt roads, wear and tear. It includes tires, wear and tear. I mean, those are all more petroleum products that you're working against some of the pieces that that you're hoping to do, maybe more steel to support it or aluminum inside it, all of it. I mean, it all starts to, when you, when you take the big picture, look, you can start to get some clarity on, is this right for me? And I like where you said that, like that one camping trip a year, that was the same thing when, you know, owning a travel trailer, all that I owned them. I I've loved camping, I well, glamping and I love that. But at the same time, I knew I had to use it. Otherwise it wasn't worth it anymore. And I probably could have bought an investment property and done way better. So that's just economics. Um, there are so many examples of this, Kai. I feel like we could talk about again and again and again, so many of them, which I'm excited to share about. Is there one greenwashing stinker that really stands out for you that we, like, if, let's put this right into the lives of all the shift heads that are listening right now. Is there, is there some simple ones that, that we're really getting greenwashed on that we can watch out for just in our day-to-day lives and at least maybe start the learning process? I don't have I don't have an example right now um, of that, but let let's talk through some th- that are complicated and where okay. you know where it's not the the message isn't like let's stay away from this whole sector, but um, but it is a different message than what most people are hearing. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about palm oil. Palm huh. oil, it's yeah. one of the big environmental fads, right? Yeah. It's, it's got a terrible terrible reputation for the deforestation in the tropics that it causes for the negative social effects that are associated with those plantations. Um, And in particular, it's the, it's the peat forests that are of greatest concern to many of the NGOs because there's just so much carbon dioxide that's locked up in that peat that gets released as soon as those peat forests get turned into palm oil plantations. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there were really graphic campaigns that I just can't get out of my head. Um, Ones that involved orangutans and and fingers of orangutans in Kit Kats, you know, with the imagery that if you buy a Kit Kat, you're basically, you know, you're you're killing orangutans. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not entirely false, right? Like it it really is the case that, um, that palm plantations are a source of deforestation that is undermining the well-being of orangutans and even worse that um that the plantations are actually conduits for for folks to get into the forest and in some cases to to kill mother orangutans and take the babies for the pet trade right so Mm -hmm. there is a connection but the idea that this one product is so bad that we ought to swear off it entirely is one that I think is really problematic. And, and a, lot of, a lot of the palm oil, um, the anti-palm oil marketing by NGOs has not just targeted regular palm oil, but also certified sustainable palm oil with the notion that it's like, that it's still terrible, that palm oil is palm oil, that, you know, that there, we should just swear off it entirely. Mm-hmm. But if you look at it from a science-based perspective, you see that 
Palm is actually many times more yield yielding, right? It yields far more calories per hectare than most other oil crops. And that it's actually from a biodiversity perspective, it's actually doesn't seem to be as bad by a, a fairly long shot from a perspective of the number of species at risk that are threatened per hectare of habitat as even olive oil, which broke my heart, or coconut oil, which also wow. broke my heart, right? Like so so other other oils that are getting marketed as being so much more environmentally friendly, so much better from a sustainability perspective, by some metrics, you could argue that they're actually worse than palm oil, right? right. And the reality is that everything that we consume has some negative environmental effects, right? The reason that palm oil is associated with so many is because there is so much palm oil on the market. And it's not like the trace ingredients in Kit Kat bars that's accounting yep. for 99% of that, right? It's yep. the fact that palm oil is a primary cooking oil for billions of people in yep. Asia. And so, you know, it's one That's of those amazing. cases where I'd argue that if you can get certified sustainable palm oil and you can, if you buy a Unilever product, which is yeah. to your point Ironic. earlier, right. yeah, then, then it's actually not that bad. And you shouldn't try to replace palm oil with soybean oil or canola oil or something else that also has negative effects and that you're not scrutinizing. Well, that's the notion that we should pay attention, which it seems to me, as I've said through COVID with arrows on the grocery store floor in order to get to where we're going, we as a society don't seem to pay much attention. To your palm oil point, uh, some examples of palm oil uh, that use palm oil, and to your point, like some little bit, some lot a bit, right? But you will be surprised to hear that it's in cosmetics like lipstick. Uh, it's used in dough, frozen doughs usually, so it doesn't stick to itself. Uh, packaged bread, it's in soap, it's in margarine, it's in chocolate, it's in shampoo and detergents, it's in cookies and ice cream. And this is the kicker to me, it's always been for uh, for palm oil. It's in biodiesel. So a lot of people are, are thinking, well, biodiesel, right? How smart is that? I can run my car, it's cleaner. But if you're not using the right kinds or the right ingredients, you could actually be doing damage there in regards to here. So it does matter what we look into. And you just broke my heart with the coconut oil. But I mean, when it comes to, I mean, coconut oil has skyrocketed now as a product. It, it wasn't so big before. So we just we buy into so much Kai. Like we just, we just take it and take it and take it. And we're like, Hey, this is the most amazing thing. My favorite influencer said it. So, and I'm going to do it now. It's green. We don't look at the labels. I mean, we could probably have a whole conversation to just dig into, dig into some of those pieces. Right. And, um, and, and learn, or maybe we don't have time to do that. So, I don't know how you do your job, man, is what I'm saying. (laughs) Yeah, well, there's no there's no end of stuff to look into is is the fact, right? It's a big job. So I don't I don't I've given up trying to to do it all, right? I just try to do my tiny little piece of it. But the one thing that I think is is the most important thing for folks to realize is that whenever they are sold on the idea that buying this product or this kind of product is really meaningfully contributing to the climate crisis or the ecological crisis or both of them wrapped up together, that basically it's better to buy less. You know, it's always better to buy less. We, we've got, because of the plethora of these claims about this product is so good for this and this like massive 
industry that continues to grow around sustainable products, we have this myth that we can buy our way out of the climate crisis. And there's just no way, you know, in, in fact, put another way, it is really our continued escalation of consumption, our, our buying habits in general, and the fact that we keep buying stuff that we don't really need. Mm-hmm. That is actually our, in the developed world, our biggest contributor to climate to climate change, to the climate crisis. Amen. And so what we really need to do is not to think about buying differently, but to think about how we can reorganize our lives, how we can change societal norms so that buying less is an acceptable and even a welcome, even a celebrated thing that we do. Uh, yeah, you could not have echoed my opinion better than you just did. Um, I have always said it, the core of everything that we go through in politics, uh, in the environment, in all of these things comes down to our consumerism. And I would go as far as to say that buying our way, spending our way out of any sort of climate organization, climate change, whatever, um, is exactly the opposite of what we need to do. We need to stop spending our way through it. Um, so when they talk about $500 billion, we'll save the planet. Actually, no, I think 500 less billion is probably going to save the planet. Um, and I'm a capitalist. I'm like, yes, just, I'm saying, just buy the stuff you love only. If only you did was buy the stuff you loved and not the other stuff that is currently in my hypocritical basement that I haven't touched in two years, what a different world this would be. Cause mine isn't the only junky basement. <laughs> yeah, no, totally. I have, I have six pairs of shoes that are kicking around that I, you know, barely ever wear because they're mostly worn out. You know, they leak through the soles. I don't want to throw them out, but, you know, but I, I, I bought six pairs of shoes that lasted me a year or two. I wish that I'd bought a pair of shoes back, you know, 10 years ago that were going to last me for 15 years, you know, that I could go and resole rather than buy a new pair. And there are shoes like that out there, right? But like 15 years ago, I wasn't thinking that way. And I didn't realize how, you know, how I was going to have this problem of like, you know, all these shoes where all the uppers were doing well. It's just the soles that are worn out, right? Like, and these are products that just, they can't be resold. So I'm, I'm just hooped on that. And I, yeah, I mean, I've learned my lesson, but it's, it's one that we could all learn. Right. And then like, if I can replace those six pairs of shoes that were a hundred bucks each with a pair of shoes that was, that's 400 bucks, that's going to last for longer than all of those put together. Like that's a win. It's still fueling the economy. It's still fueling jobs. Right. And it's put, it's requiring way fewer materials and it's just like, it just makes more sense, right? It's part of a circular economy. If we can just yeah. keep that product going and then disassemble it when it finally reaches the end of its life. I think of those old guys in those old cars. For me, it's, you know, like a new sports car, but not brand new. 2007 Aston Martin Vantage V8. If you went out and bought that car and you bought it for yourself, you would not drive it every day. You would drive it for special events. You would use it. You would try to get a lifetime of life out of it. Like you see these these cars that um, those old like Chevys and Bel Airs and back in the day, well cared for, groomed. People drive those on their Sunday drives. Now, they already exist in the world. You're not buying a new one. They exist in the world and then they take care of them and they drive them gently. They love them and they try to get a lifetime out of the car. And so if you love it, take care of it. And that's all everyone's talking about. The disposable notion, um, 
I, you know, it's a funny thing about straws too. I, we got to wrap up, but the funny thing about straws, for example, that I get to, yeah, my son's my son losing his mind because McDonald's went from plastic straws to paper straws, and he was they were like the last holdout. He was like, McDonald's is the best; they've got plastic straws, and um, now they're on the paper straws. He loses his mind, and then the concept in his mind w- didn't connect the dots. And I said to him, I said, "Why don't you just say no straw?" And he's like, what do you mean? I hate paper straws. Me too. Just tell them we don't want a straw because we can just take the lid off and drink it. And he's like, I didn't ever think of that. I've never had a drink from McDonald's that I could just drink. I'm like, yeah, just tell them not to fill it up all the way and and just don't use a straw. He's So the way of thinking is either we're so wrapped up in this closed-mindedness about plastic straw or paper straw. What about no straw? Totally. What a magical world that would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And apply that uh, to everything, right? Exactly. This yeah. is cool. You know what? There's so much to learn. And I like, Kai, the way that you go about, what if we could just reevaluate? Reevaluate, be responsible, lose the recklessness. That in itself costs $0. And it starts to change everything. I kind of always describe it as... If you could just hold the door open for one person and one act of kindness, one, everybody who's listening to the shift right now, just one act of kindness. Do you realize how many tens of thousands of acts of kindness that is in the world today? What a difference that makes. It's beautiful. I appreciate being here. Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.